Our reading this morning is taken from the letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, and starting at verse 1. This is on page 1179 of the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow it there. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is the word of the Lord. Love changes everything. I'm not going to sing, it's all right. When you fall in love for the first time, the whole world suddenly comes alive. You have a new joy in your heart. The birds sing louder, the grass looks greener, the trees look more magnificent, the flowers take on a new vibrancy. You wake up with a new eagerness for the day ahead, especially if you're to see the newfound love of your life. There is an almost constant excitement underlying everything that you do. The new experience of love changes the way you feel about everything, It changes the way you think about everything, and it changes the way you behave about everything. When Guy and I first got together, I was a student nurse training up in Roehampton, and he was living down with his parents in Chiddingfold, and he would religiously drive up the A3 to see me on a regular basis, which was very sweet of him. And I used to work shifts, so I used to work late often and then an early A late finished about 10 o'clock in the evening, and an early started at 7, so not much sleep time in the middle. Guy knew this, but despite that, he would still valiantly drive up the A3 to see me for a few hours in between shifts, which is great. Um, Apart from he had a very old, um, very special car that was given to him by his grandfather called Bernard. Um, Bernard was an orange Volvo 345, and we haven't ever seen one since, actually. I think they died when he did. Um, And and Bernard was not um, a reliable Volvo, and he constantly and regularly used to break down on the A3, normally at the Kingston Bypass, where there isn't a hard shoulder. But he still came. Irrational. Love makes you behave in very strange ways. And if you're lucky, this feeling of love expands and evolves as you grow together. But you are forever changed because of it. Because of that experience of love. Experience. We have all had an experience of love. Love of parents, love of partners, love of children, or love of a friend. It's what makes the world go round. And it changes the way we feel, the way we think, and the way we behave. So in the first two verses of our reading of Paul's letter to the Philippians, 
he is reminding them of this experience of love and the effect it's had on them. If you'd like to look at it again with me, it's on page 1179, as Nikki was saying. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if. These are rhetorical statements. Paul knows full well that they have had this experience of being united in Christ. And he is reminding them of who they are. They are in Christ. This is a really important phrase, and Paul uses it frequently in this letter, and it's used over 170 times in the New Testament alone. So what does it mean? Well, it's that their identity is in Christ. As Paul writes in another letter to the Galatians, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking to the Christians there in Galatia, reminding them of their new identity since they placed their faith in Jesus. To be baptised in Christ means that they were identified with Christ, having left their old sinful lives behind, and now they were fully embracing their new life in Christ. So, therefore, it's a great source of encouragement. Paul continues, if any comfort from his love, again, reminding them of their experience of receiving love. It's most likely that Paul is referring to the love of the Father here. We have the comfort of knowing, of experiencing the love of God. The Greek word that he uses here is agape, that reckless, relentless, never-ending, sacrificial, all-encompassing love that God shows us. Paul then goes on, reminds them of the fellowship we have in the Spirit. The Greek word he uses here is kononia, meaning fellowship, a deep fellowship, a deep companionship, a deep sense of community where we all share things that we have in common. And he finishes his rhetorical opening gambit with reminding them of their experience of the tenderness and the compassion shown to them by God. So to me, this speaks strongly of life lived with the awareness of the Trinity. We have Paul reminding the people of Philippi of their real, tangible experiences, of the encouragement of being in Christ, the comfort of knowing the love of the Father, the fellowship, kononia, of living with the Spirit, and the tenderness and compassion and the grace and mercy of God. So in the first two verses, he's laid out who they are and what they're about. In the first two verses, he's laid out who we are and what we're about. This is who we are. So what does this mean? What difference does this make to our lives? 
Our experiences shape who we are. Arguably, the most powerful experience we can have is when we fall in love. And if this is reciprocated, wow, that's life-changing. If we fall in love with Jesus, with God, with the Holy Spirit, we are guaranteed an overwhelming outpouring of love right back at us. And this, unavoidably, has a dramatic impact on our thinking and our behaviour. Paul knew this as he spoke to the people of Philippi. From this experience of living in relationship with God, they were being transformed. He rejoices in this, and he urges them not to slip back. He's encouraging them and warning them of the traps that they can very easily fall into. Traps that have not disappeared over the centuries. If anything, they're even more prevalent now than they were then. Paul was warning them about the selfie culture. Incidentally, it was National Selfie Day on Friday. I'm sure you all knew that. From the beginning, we have evolved to preserve and to protect self. We've had to exist like this in order to survive. It's fundamental to our well-being, up to a point. We have to have enough food, enough water, enough shelter, and enough companionship. But how much is enough? Can we ever have enough? Is humanity's addiction one of more? More food, more drink, more houses, more friends. Is our addiction to more an example of self-will run riot? When did meeting our wants overcome our needs? I went through quite a long period of my life in that space thinking that if I had more children, more pets, more houses, more cars, then I'd be happy. That more would fix that deep restlessness that I felt. Our ego is in control as we start out in life. That's the way of things. But there comes a point when our ego, when our selfish desires, our pride, our wants our need for more cannot be satisfied when we come to the end of ourselves, when we say, what next? What now? When we realise that the wall we've been building our ladder up against is the wrong wall. Being in Christ is the start of this transformational process. It's the start of the self-emptying process that Jesus models so beautifully for us. To throw another Greek word at you, it's kenosis, an emptying of self, of my desires, of my will. It's what we pray when we say, your will be done. It is also one of the most challenging parts of being a follower of Jesus. The second part of the reading focuses on humility. 
Humility is not something we can buy. It can't be forced. It can't be earned. And you can't put it on. It comes as a response to the outpouring of life that Jesus gave us in sacrifice. It comes in response to the overwhelming love of a gracious God. It comes when we empty ourselves of our selfish desires and our egocentric demands. It comes when we eventually let go and let God. When we stop trying to protect our small lives and embrace the natural ebb and flow of life, trusting in the one whom we live and move and have our being. From our identity in Christ, in receiving the love of God and by living in fellowship with each other, we are able, by grace, to live unselfish lives. We are able to put others before us, to value them above ourselves, to do nothing, as Paul says, from selfish ambition, but for the good of others. However, we are a work in progress. It is progress, not perfection. And I love what C.S. Lewis says about humility. And he's thinking about humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Living as we do in a culture that is so self-orientated, it is a constant challenge to give up our control, to put aside our own agenda, to give ourselves to the service of others. We can so often be driven and motivated by fear and not love. It's a daily choice to live from our experience of the love and acceptance that we have found in God and not from the insatiable demands of our world. In putting others before ourselves, May we be able to pray with St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Father, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.